Should the president pardon himself and members of his family, or would that be self-serving and self-dealing? And speaking of self-serving, did you know that David Boys and his mega law firm got up to $10 million in welfare payments for uh, COVID, money that should have gone to mom-pop uh, shops to stay in business? Uh, instead, it went to David Boys. David Boys, who owns a yacht and his firm. David Boys, who's owns a winery, could have sold the yacht, could have sold the winery, and more money would have gone to poor people. So today on The Dirt Show, we talk about principles and self-serving actions. Pardons are in the news once again, uh, according to reports in the New York Times and other media. Rudy Giuliani uh, may have asked the president to pardon him even though he hasn't been indicted or under investigation for anything, a kind of preemptive pardon. Um, I think Giuliani has has denied it, and I don't know whether it's true. But also uh, on other media, there are reports that the president is considering pardoning members of his family and others uh, preemptively. Now, let me first lay out the law and the history of such pardons, and then we can get to the to the policies. I don't know whether or not the president is even considering uh, these preemptive pardons. There are two kinds of preemptive pardons, one perfectly legal, the other probably not legal. The perfectly legal one is the one that uh, says you're pardoned for everything you've done in the past, uh, obviously, um, that was done to Richard Nixon. Uh, Richard Nixon was pardoned for all offenses he may have committed while he was president of the United States. Uh, that may have cost his successor uh, re-election doing that, but that's a political a political act. The, the president under the Constitution is entitled to pardon anybody for any offense that's been committed. Let me just read you the language of the broad pardon provision of the Constitution so we know what we're talking about, because in a minute I'll talk about an alleged constitutional scholar who reads from the Constitution but misreads the Constitution and selectively quotes certain portions while deliberately and selectively omitting others. So I'm going to read all the relevant portions of the Constitution. The Constitution says the following, President shall, quote, have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. So he can pardon for anything. He can't pardon an impeachment. He can't stop an impeachment. President Trump could not have stepped in and said, hey, Dershowitz, I don't need you to represent me on the Senate floor. I'm just going to pardon myself for impeachment. No, the Constitution explicitly says he can't pardon himself for impeachment. But that's the only thing he can't pardon. He can pardon for, for everything else. So legally, there's absolutely no doubt he could he could uh, pardon uh, Rudy Giuliani for any alleged crimes that Giuliani uh, might have committed or members of his family. If I were Giuliani, I wouldn't be asking for such a pardon or, or even accepting one because uh, that almost suggests that maybe he's worried about uh, being prosecuted for any crimes. And I, I don't see what crimes possibly could have been committed. And I don't think that the Biden administration is going to go after people uh, who are in the Trump administration for crimes, unless they're obvious and overt and and clear. But I don't think we're going to see the kind of banana republic approach that we see in other parts of the world, where as soon as the president is defeated, they go after him and his family. I don't, I don't think we're going to 
uh, see any of that. So one kind of preemptive approach, perfectly lawful, is pardon you for everything you've done. There's another kind of preemptive approach, which is plainly not lawful. Namely, a president can't say, and I also pardon you for any crimes you might consider doing in the future or you might do in the future. That just doesn't operate under the rule of law in the United States. A president can't give in advance uh, a person any kind of a get-out-of-jail-free ticket for crimes that are being committed in the future. Uh, President Jefferson came awfully close at one point in his history, when in an effort to try to get evidence against Aaron Burr, who he hated and wanted to see prosecuted and convicted for treason, he actually called potential witnesses to the White House and said to them, look, uh, if you're willing to testify against Aaron Burr, I'm willing to give you a pardon. It was an early form of immunity. There were no provisions in the statutes for immunity. So the president essentially gave immunity by saying to witnesses, if you testify, I will give you a pardon. I will give you a pardon. Now, he didn't explicitly say, if you testify truthfully, I'll give you a pardon. I think that's what he meant. But what if somebody had then testified falsely? Would he have been pardoned by President Jefferson? Nobody knows the answer to that because we don't know whether or not people testified truthfully or falsely. But we do know that a president, A, has the power to pardon for anything that has occurred in the past and that he doesn't have the power generally to pardon for things that will occur in the future. So he could pardon Giuliani. Giuliani might not accept the pardon. Maybe he would. Uh, he could pardon members of his family. Don't know whether they would accept uh, the, the pardon. And then the question arises, the $64,000 question, any of you who are old enough to remember that show on television, could a president pardon himself? And uh, here's where uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe, my former colleague, uh, continues to miseducate the American public and to mislead them um, in his partisan zeal. He basically told uh, CNN uh, yesterday that the Constitution is clear that a president cannot pardon himself. And he uh, read from one part of the Constitution, and I'll read from that part of the Constitution as well. It says the party convicted, and that is of impeachment, the party who's impeached and convicted, if President Trump had been impeached, and he had been impeached, but if he had been convicted, no, he was acquitted. The party convicted shall nevertheless be held subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Yeah, that's clear. The president could be uh, investigated and charged after he leaves office if he's impeached, um, and, um, but according to law. Now, what does the law then say? Well, the law says that a president can uh, pardon uh, people, and uh, it doesn't say he can't pardon himself. So an impeached president can be prosecuted, quote, according to the law. But the law includes the power of the president to pardon and tribe deliberately left out uh, of his discussion, the part of the Constitution that says the president shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. So President Trump hasn't been impeached. If he were to be indicted, that part of the Constitution would suggest he could pardon himself. Uh, and the other part of the Constitution can't be read in isolation. So, you know, Tribe just goes out of his way to mislead the public so that they will believe his partisan interpretations of the Constitution. Tribe has never seen a provision of the Constitution that doesn't serve his own partisan interests. Uh, Tribe also totally misled the public 
in his description of American history. I think I'm paraphrasing quite accurately when he said that um, never before in history has a president ever pardoned anybody, not for compassionate purposes, but in order to obstruct justice. Duh. How old is Tribe? He's just a couple of years younger than me. He remembers Lawrence Walsh and the Iran-Contra investigation. He remembers President George H.W. Bush pardoning Caspar Weinberger and others in his administration on the eve of their trial. And I'm sure he remembers Lawrence Walsh, the special prosecutor, the very distinguished special prosecutor, saying that that was an obstruction of justice. So Tribe, go back and read your history. More important, you know your history. Look in the mirror and finally tell the people the truth. Don't mislead them about history. Don't say never before in history when in your memory, you probably commented on it. There's probably videotape of you talking about it. You remember vividly that there was a case not so long ago where a president pardoned in order to protect himself from the possibility of being incriminated and the special prosecutor called it an obstruction of justice. And don't tell the American public that never before has this happened. And Tribe, when you quote the Constitution, quote all the relevant portions of it. If you were a student in my class and gave an exam answer that quoted one part of the Constitution and deliberately left out another part of the Constitution that was equally relevant, I would be generous in flunking you instead of calling you to the attention of the dean for unethical conduct. My God, reading one portion of the Constitution, eliminating the other portion of the Constitution, misleading the American public and telling them that never before in history has a president granted a pardon not for purposes of compassion, but for self-serving purposes that might have obstructed justice when you fully knew that that was a lie, when you fully knew that President George H.W. Bush did exactly that in pardoning Casper Weinberger on the eve of his trial before he was convicted. So please, Professor Tribe, we both taught at Harvard for a long time. I pride myself on telling the truth and being principled. Please don't sully the reputation of our law school by misreading the Constitution, by misreading history, and by miseducating the American public about the Constitution and history. You have a responsibility, not only to your students, but to your viewers to tell the truth and be honest and not to serve as a, a shill for uh, partisan politics, which is what you've been doing for the last uh, four years. So please, please live up to your responsibility as a professor of constitutional law, something you have not been doing in recent uh, years. And speaking of people whose ethics should be questioned, today's uh, Wall Street Journal has a large picture of uh, David Boies. You know, I'm at war with David Boies, but let me, let me explain to you why there's a large picture of him in today's Wall Street Journal, not for anything good he's done. He has become the poster child, he and his law firm, the poster child for greed and ethically challenged conduct and behavior. Would you believe that the law firm of Boy Schiller, headed by David Boys, made an application for and received up to $10 million, essentially in welfare funds, about COVID uh, loans, but the loans will, in many instances, be forgiven. This is a law firm whose partners averaged $3 million a year. Um, Boys himself, in the first part of last year, billed over $30 million 
dollars. Uh, he owns a vineyard in California. His law firm owns a yacht, a racing yacht that we see parked uh, in, in Martha's vineyard. What does he do? He comes and his law firm comes and essentially steals money from poor people. You know, the COVID relief was supposed to be for mom pa stores who were going out of business. And almost $10 million, as much as $10 million of those funds are given to a law firm that owns a vineyard and a yacht. Sell the goddamn vineyard. Sell the yacht if you want to pay the wages of your employees. The fact that you need to come to the federal government for a handout is outrageous. Give the money back. There ought to be an investigation of David Boyes, an investigation of Boyes Schiller for the application that they filed. Did they disclose how much each partner makes? Did they disclose that they have a yacht? Did they disclose that Boyes owns a a vineyard and has a collection of fine, fine wines? Did they disclose that in addition to his home, he owns a a, a very fancy condominium in the Sherry Netherlands Hotel in New York? Uh, did Did he disclose all of that in the application? Why would the government give money to David Boyes and his law firm just to add to their coffers? $30 million of billing from David Boyes alone in the first part of the year, over $3 million a partner. How much does David Boyes take home every year? $25 million, $30 million, $50 million, $100 million? We need to know the answers to those questions. If you're going to take money from the government, you have to be transparent. And the one thing David Boyes is not, is transparent about his life, his personal life, his financial life, his legal life. And uh, we're going to get some transparency because, as you probably know, he and I are in a lawsuit and we uh, will be discovering things about uh, each other and the public uh, will learn uh, about some of these secrets. But the government shouldn't have to learn about it through a lawsuit. The government should learn about it through public disclosures and filings and investigation. So let's look into why David Boyes took money from mom pa stores that should have been given to them to keep their minimum wage employees uh, getting paid instead of adding more money so he can buy more yachts and more vineyards and bill at even higher rates. No problems with Boyes making a lot of money for representing clients as long as he does it ethically unlike what he may have done in the Theranos case and in the Harvey Weinstein case when the New York Times fired him for a conflict of interest because at the same time he was representing the New York Times, he hired some firm of investigators of questionable uh, activities to um, engage in what many regard as extortion of the very journalists on the New York Times whose uh, paper he was representing threatening them if they go forward with stories about Harvey Weinstein, that uh, actions will be taken against them. The New York Times not only fired boys, they had an editorial uh, against them, condemning him as as, as he well deserved. But then they had a friend of his do a puff piece uh, on him. And uh, so, you know, this was in an effort to recover his reputation. Well, we'll see if his reputation survives. But the important thing is the American public is entitled to relief from COVID. But David Boyes is not entitled to relief, financial relief, $10 million of relief that he could have gotten by selling his uh, yacht and his, uh, his vineyard. So 
let's keep the country honest. Uh, let's keep let's hold David Boys accountable. Let's hold uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe accountable. Let's hold the president accountable. So let's turn out of the policies behind um, pardons. Pardons serve two essential functions. One, compassion. Yeah, yeah. You want the president to give uh, pardons and commutations in cases of excessive sentences, cases where there's family crises, in cases where the individual deserves some degree of compassion and and mercy. But that's not the only function of um, uh, the, the pardon provision of the Constitution. It's also part of our system of checks and balances. Again, here, Tribe is wrong when he says it's only designed for compassion. It's designed as checks and balances. The executive authority should have the power and does have the power under the pardon provision of the Constitution to make sure that legislatures and the judiciary don't uh, overreach, um, as they do, for example, when they combine to allow what's called the trial penalty. What's the trial penalty? I've mentioned this before. Uh, there's a case now pending in front of the uh, president. I've written in favor of, of, of this uh, issue. Um, there's a case pending in front of the president now involving two people who were offered deals, white-collar criminals, who were offered deals of around seven years if they pleaded guilty, but they didn't think they were guilty, so they went to trial and they were convicted, and they got sentences like 75 and 85 years, life imprisonment. Not for the crime that they were convicted of, that they got seven years for, that they agreed to accept seven years. But the additional 70-some-odd years was for the crime, in quotation marks, the crime of asserting their Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury. They got the trial by jury, but they had to pay for it, and they had to pay for it in the tune of 70 or so years. That's the kind of case presidents ought to be looking at for purposes of checking and balancing against the um, excesses. I wrote an article yesterday, day before yesterday, in the um, Newsweek magazine, setting out what I think are the proper criteria for pardons. Professor Tribe were to read that article, he might learn uh, something. And in it, I lay out criteria that are appropriate for the use of the pardon under checks and balances. Look, I am seeking pardons uh, for clients. I always do. I have from the beginning of my uh, career. I sought pardons from uh, President Clinton. I sought pardons from other presidents. So I have an interest in this. I want to see the president uh, broaden the pardon power. That doesn't mean I want to see him abuse the power. No, uh, no president should ever abuse the pardon power. But uh, let's understand what's lawful and what's not lawful, what is principled, what's unprincipled. And the president ought to pardon broadly when it fits the criteria of both compassion and checks and balances. Now, I'm sure we're going to get some responses. I would always invite anybody who I criticize, Professor Tribe, uh, David Boyce, come on my show. I give you uninterrupted time to make your point. I'll then make my point. Uh, let's have a back and forth. Uh, I doubt they will accept my offer, but any of you who want to speak up on their behalf, be my guest. Tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm picking on them. Tell me why Tribe is correct 
when he misleads you about the history of how pardons have been used by former American presidents. Tell me that David Boies was correct in taking up to $10 million in welfare funds for one of the wealthiest firms in, in, in the world and a firm whose partners are in an excess of $3 million a partner. Tell me why I'm wrong. That's your job. Der show. That's my job. Wits. That's your job. You fill in the rest of the name by asking me hard questions. So let's turn to your questions now on The Der Show. The first call is from a person who has the same name I grew up with, Avi. Hi, Professor Dershowitz. This is Avi from New York. I just wanted to comment on a comment by a caller from yesterday who was concerned that your nomination of President Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize would aggravate uh, Trump critics uh, and would detract from your effectiveness as a spokesperson and an advocate for Israel. Um, my, uh, I guess, comment would be that the Democratic Party of today is not the Democratic Party of Clinton or Al Gore. Um, I think uh, you speaking out in support of the nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize would not um, repel that many people uh, on that side of the aisle, uh, as I think may have been the case uh, 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, those are my thoughts, and uh, thank you so much for the show. I love it. Thank you so much, Avi. Very, very thoughtful comment. I, I, I don't think I agree with you. I think it will repel a lot of people. will get very many people very upset including probably members of my family and friends. But um, I don't do things based on whether it will upset people. I do it based on whether I think it's right. And I haven't yet made the nomination. Um, and I want to hear from lots of people. But I very much appreciate your views. Thank you. Our next call is from David. Mr. Dershowitz, this is David Vogels. I think the president was absolutely correct in pardoning General Flynn, and I'm hoping that in the coming weeks he will outdo President Obama and pardon several thousand people. You have a great day, and I'm hoping to hear back from you. Thanks for your call. I share your uh, desire. I hope the president will pardon many people, both on compassionate grounds and on grounds of separation of powers and checks and balances. The presidential power of pardon commutation is extraordinarily important. And there are now, you know, radical Democrats like uh, Professor Tribe who are trying to limit the president's power to a pardon. Um, if they want to go back and amend the Constitution, that's their prerogative. But don't mislead the American public about the pardon power. It's very extensive and very broad. And presidents should exercise it consistent with their role as checking and balancing the other two branches of government. So uh, thanks a lot for your call. Our next call is from John in Texas. Hi, my name is John Starlipper. I'm from Houston, Texas. Professor uh, Dersowicz, I, I really uh, admire your willingness to take unpopular stances and represent unpopular people. And I hope um, that if they ever redo Kennedy's uh, famous book, Profiles in Courage, that talks about political courage and uh, the courage to do the right thing, I hope that you're included in that book. And that leads me to ask the question, who were your legal heroes when you were young and thinking about getting into your profession? 
Thank you so much. Bye-bye. A great question. Thank you for asking it. Uh, of course, I was very influenced by John Kennedy's book, uh, Profiles and Courage. I read it a number of times, and uh, I obviously uh, enjoy reading about people who show that kind of courage. You know, when I was growing up, um, my heroes were the people who resisted the the Nazis um, and tried to fight back against the Holocaust, the people in the Warsaw Ghetto, the people who stood up to uh, fascism. Um, of course, in the United States, my heroes were like so many other people's heroes, um, Abraham Lincoln, uh, particularly, and, 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 and others. Clarence Darrow was among my heroes. He was a great criminal defense lawyer who was pilloried, attacked, even indicted uh, for his representation of uh, controversial um, defendants. Uh, but I discovered early in my life that almost all heroes have clay feet. There are no such thing as, as perfect heroes. Um, uh, and so hero worship is not a good thing. Trying to learn from heroes is a very good thing. And so I very much appreciate uh, your comment. Our next call is from Josh in Maryland. Hi, Professor. Uh, thank you so much for your show. It's so interesting. And one of the things that I love about the show is you try to be balanced in that if you like something the president is doing, you say this is what he's doing that I think is good. And you criticize him on other things. And one of the things that's so interesting to see, especially in the media and just in society in general right now, is just this level of hatred for the president, for President Trump. Uh, he can't do anything right in the eyes of, of the media and the people that don't like him. And even the things that he's done that have, has, has obviously we can both agree on has had a good impact in society. They think he's a, a racist. They think he's an idiot. They think he's a terrible person uh, some would compare him to Hitler. Um, how do you think it gets to that level of hatred, those people that don't like him? How do you think it got to that level? Um, and and how do you think the, the nation as a whole can unify and come together again? Uh, thank you for the show. Great question. I think the fault lies primarily with the media. The media has legitimated this extremism and this hatred. Uh, the New York Times, uh, CNN, many other media just present President Trump as a figure to be hated, despised, who can do no right, no wrong. And when people read the newspaper and the newspapers and the, the media and television takes this extraordinary one-sided view then it legitimates people in the street taking the view. You know, it, it was always the case that you went to a bar at 11 o'clock at night and after a few beers, people would attack one candidate, defend the other in extreme terms. You expect that after a few beers in a bar. You don't expect that in the uh, newsroom of the New York Times, or if there is even a newsroom at CNN. CNN has stopped reporting the news years ago. They just report opinions. Um, but their opinions are so overloaded and, and so extremist and so biased, as I've said before, Walter Cronkite could not get a job today in the media 
because he's too uh, objective and unbiased. Uh, I think if I were a journalist today, I probably couldn't get a job in the media because I try to call it down the middle. I praise presidents I voted against when they do the right thing, and I condemn presidents I voted for when they do the wrong thing. You're never going to hear that from Professor Lawrence Tribe. You're never going to hear that from uh, CNN. You're never going to hear that from the New York Times. In those cases, you just look at the name and you know what they're going to say. It's all at hominem. If it's Trump, it's bad. If it's Biden, it's good. If it's uh, uh, Obama, it's especially good. And so it's all at hominem reporting. And that's what contributes to the terrible atmosphere we have in this country today where you can't have rational, nuanced, thoughtful discussions about the pros and cons of public figures. You either have to say they're all pro or all con. There's nothing in the middle, and that's a great tragedy. Our next call is from California. Tom? Uh, Professor, in your November 30th show, you said that you felt the courts would set aside a decision by the legislature to choose electors contrary to the vote of the people uh, after the election Mm -hmm. had occurred. Yet on prior shows, you said the courts had no no role in extending um, the date that ballots could be counted in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. because that was the province of the legislators of the legislature. Since electors are also the province of the legislature, why the difference between the two analyses? Why can the courts interfere sometimes but not other times in what appear to me to be similar situations? Thank you and enjoy your podcast very much. Great question, the kind of question that would get a student an A on an exam, pointing out an apparent inconsistency, but the consistency is only apparent. The court that can't overrule legislature is the state court. The state court of Pennsylvania can't overrule legislatures under the constitutional provision that gives state legislatures the power to decide how electors are chosen. But the United States Supreme Court has ultimate authority, as evidenced by Bush versus Gore 20 years ago, and it can decide as between the legislatures of the state and the courts whether the Constitution is being followed. And my prediction, it's only a prediction, is that if the case went to the Supreme Court and if a state legislature decided to send its own slate of electors instead of those already elected by the public, I don't think the Supreme Court would accept that uh, use of legislative power after the election. Could be wrong. Uh, never know. Uh, predicting what the Supreme Court can do is always very questionable. The Talmud says that prophecy ended with the destruction of the Second Temple, and anybody who tries to prophesy is either a fool or a knave, and as Yogi Berra put it more aptly, a prediction is difficult, especially about the future, and especially about the Supreme Court. So I take your point, but I do think the court would distinguish between a state court and its own power as the Supreme Court of the United States applying the supreme law of the land. Our next question is from New Orleans. Mike. In regards to the scientist from Iran who was killed uh, by our uh, intelligence, I'm very glad he's dead. I'm glad he's no longer a threat. Uh, I think he was an evil person and part of an evil regime. But I always put the shoe on the other foot test. 
would it be allowable to kill someone in America, or arrest someone for that matter, who simply owned a lot of guns and talked quite a lot online, but gave no evidence that there was any active movement on their part to hurt anyone? Um, I think it can be on a slippery slope. I, I understand there are you know, rules of war and it's different than everyday life. But it just raises questions, and I hope that our intelligence agencies had a lot more actionable intelligence that there was imminent threat than just he's developing what we know to be a weapon. Uh, and, and we know that he had intentions or could prove it to justify the killing. Thanks. Another great question. Line drawing always is so difficult. Uh, no, of course, it would never be proper to attack an American citizen who just had weapons and went online and talked about the possible use of those weapons. The Iranian scientist is very different. He was a combatant. He was a member, a uniformed member of the uh, Iranian terrorist organization, the Revolutionary Guard. United States and others have designated the Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. They foment terror. They export terror. They have as part of their operational wing... Hezbollah, which virtually every country has listed as a terrorist organization. So the man who was killed was a terrorist. He was a combatant. And when you're a terrorist and a combatant, the threat doesn't have to be imminent. It can be longer term. Um, so if there were a terrorist organization in the United States, a designated terrorist group, and there was a scientist who was helping to uh, develop uh, nuclear uh, weapons or any other kind of weapons, yeah, that person probably could be arrested. Uh, remember, too, the use of targeted assassination is the last resort. Nobody could have arrested this scientist. It wouldn't have been possible to try to uh, issue an indictment, order him to be extradited from Iran. They would have laughed at it. The only way of stopping him from developing nuclear weapons, which the Revolutionary Guard has already announced they would use against Israel and perhaps against the United States to destroy what they call the big Satan and the little Satan. Once that has been determined to be the unlawful terrorist goal, and he is a combatant, he is a lawful target. Um, even if he were asleep, he'd be a lawful target. If you're a combatant and an unlawful combatant and uh, threatening to kill civilians... Uh, as they have threatened to do if they develop nuclear weapons, I think, again, very, very appropriate uh, target. But, you know, if, if you don't think he was an appropriate target, you obviously can't think that Osama bin Laden was an appropriate target. Osama bin Laden was not a uniformed person. Uh, he was, of course, the head of a terrorist organization, Al-Qaeda, but the organization was essentially defunct, and his role in it was non-existent. He was hiding away in a retreat. He had no contact with the outside uh, world. Any phone call he tried to make would have been picked up by intelligence. So the killing of Osama bin Laden, which many people think was justified, including the people who organized it, uh, Obama and John Brennan and others, was a revenge killing, uh, was revenge, was bringing him to justice for the terrible, terrible things he did to American citizens, innocent people, men and women, uh, on 9-11. He surely deserved to die and, and deserved a, a special place in hell for, for what he did. But you can't say that that was more justified 
than killing people who are actively engaged in ongoing acts of crimes against humanity on behalf of an active terrorist organization like the Revolutionary Guard. So I take your point. It's a very good one, and I hope I've answered it satisfactorily. Our next call is from Tommy in Florida. Um, there's a lot of talk right now in the media about uh, possible preemptive pardons um, for Giuliani and the Trump family, etc. And uh, I understand the concept of uh, pardon. If you've been convicted of a crime, you can be pardoned. But what on earth is a preemptive pardon? Thanks. Great question. Of course, earlier in the show, I discussed two kinds of preemptive pardons, one of which was legal, the other of which was almost certainly illegal. The illegal one is your pardon for any crime you might commit in the future. That's a kind of green light to commit crimes, a get-out-of-jail card-free, uh, a license to kill. Uh, surely that shouldn't operate. Intelligence services certainly give that license to kill. Uh, any of you remember James Bond film? Uh, it wasn't fictional when 007 had a license to kill. Obviously, selective, used only in extraordinary cases, but there are some extraordinary people who do have a license to, to kill, uh, but not through the pardon power. The other is preemptive in the sense that the person has already committed the crime, like Richard Nixon may well have committed the crime, but when President Ford uh, pardoned him, he had not been indicted or charged with any crimes, and so it was a preemptive pardon in the sense of, you are hereby pardoned for any crimes you may have committed even if you haven't been charged. My reading of the President Trump pardon of General Flynn was both reactive and preemptive. He pardoned him for the crimes for which he was then uh, potentially going to serve a sentence, which he had pleaded guilty in trying to withdraw his guilty plea. But I think the pardon also included other crimes he may have committed, which he hadn't yet been charged with, in order to make sure that the government, uh, the prosecutors, didn't go after him and kind of redefine the crime, the lying, the untruthful statements, and turn it into, say, a perjury prosecution instead of a prosecution for lying to uh, the FBI or vice versa. So uh, there is a role for preemptive pardons. It is legal. Um, it should be used sparingly, but when appropriately used, uh, it's appropriate. And um, President George H.W. Bush did engage in something halfway between uh, preemptive and, and reactive. He pardoned Casper Weinberger after the crime was committed, after he was indicted, but before he was tried, uh, on the eve of the trial, presumably in order to stop Weinberger from giving testimony that might have been incriminating of President uh, Bush, which is why um, uh, the special prosecutor called it essentially the continuation of an obstruction of justice. Great call, great comment. Our next call is from Tom in California. Hello, Professor. My name is Tom. I'm calling from Costa Mesa, California. My question is if the signature envelopes are taken into federal court, why would the federal standard for question documents not be applied? In other words, a question signature in court requires an expert analysis to determine whether or not that person actually signed it. In the course of this election, my understanding is that a government worker and on occasion observers from Democrat and Republican parties viewed the signatures and without professional expertise determined that they were acceptable. 
Would that be acceptable if they were challenged in federal court? A great question, but it has an answer. Um, the applicable rules are the rules of each individual state. The states have a right to determine how to test the validity of signatures on a ballot subject to equal protection and making sure that the same standards are applied within a given state. But it would be up to state rules of evidence, not the federal rules of evidence, even if the case went into federal court. At least that's my understanding of an area of law that has rarely been tested in the courts. But great, great question. Boy, we're getting a real law school seminar today. These questions have been fantastic. Please, please keep them coming. Our last call is from Alan in Florida. Hi, Alan. Can you compare today's divisive time to the 60s that we can both remember or another time in history? And how can we repair as a nation and find solutions if the red and blue team have two different realities and don't even agree on the problems. Thank you very much. I think you're doing a great job, and I love the Dersh. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for a great question. That question lies at the core of this show and what we're trying to do and how we're trying to bring people together and substitute rational discourse for just screaming and yelling and name-calling and ad hominem attacks on each other. I can think of three times in our history that we've had divisions uh, like this. Obviously, the run-up to the Civil War and the Civil War, we've never had a division like that. I hope we never will. Hundreds of thousands of Americans on both sides died in the process. Many more were injured. It traumatized the country, and it ended up uh, with uh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which are uh, um, most important parts of our post-Constitution amending a process. So that was the most divisive time in our history. It had to be resolved tragically by a war. I've often thought what would have happened instead of going to war if the South had simply seceded, not attacked Fort Sumter, had simply issued a declaration saying we secede, we're no longer part of the United States of America, reading from the Declaration of Independence when in the course of human events it becomes necessary. Um, would there have been a war? Would Lincoln have a attacked and invaded the South. Nobody knows the answer to that question, uh, obviously. The second most divisive time in our history, I think, occurred uh, during the 1960s and early 1970s when I was a young assistant professor of law and professor of law at Harvard and represented a lot of people who were in the anti-Vietnam War movement. I was part of the anti-Vietnam War movement. I didn't think it was a war that we should be fighting and sacrificing American young people for, and I defended a lot of the people who didn't want to be drafted, etc. It was very divisive, and there was violence. Uh, the weathermen uh, engaged in violence, and some of the people who engaged in violence are now heroes. One of them is teaching at Columbia. One of them, I think, is teaching at Chicago. Uh, these were criminals who planted bombs and made bombs and either threatened to kill people or actually killed people, and now they're heroes of the hard left. I've never understood that. If the shoe were on the other foot, if, they, if these were fascists who were blowing up buildings and engaging in violence on behalf of some fascist philosophy, would Columbia hire them after they served their sentence? Would the University of Chicago hire them after they served their sentence? Uh, would President Obama have befriended them? Um, I, I don't think so. So they don't pass the shoe on the other foot test, but that was an extremely divisive time. The current time is almost as divisive. So far, a little less violent. We don't have terrorist groups planting bombs. It could happen. God forbid. I hope it doesn't happen. Um, we've seen some violence, outgrowths of legitimate demonstrations about racial 
injustice, but the rhetoric is even more divisive than it was in the 1960s. I knew people in the 1960s who actually supported the Vietnam War, and I was able to talk to them and have conversations with them. I invited them to my class. I taught a class on um, legal issues growing out of the Vietnam War, and I tried very hard not to express my personal views in that class, but to uh, apply an objective analysis, look at court decisions, look at whether or not the Vietnam War needed the approval of Congress, whether it required a declaration of war. We went through all those issues and I had people on both sides and we could talk to each other. Today, unfortunately, we can't talk to each other, except on this show, we can talk to each other. We can have every view, every diverse opinion expressed. So please keep calling The Der Show and please keep disagreeing with me. And none of you are disagreeable. You just express your views in a very co coherent and cogent and, and, and friendly way. So keep the calls coming. Keep being the wits to the Der Show. And please, please subscribe, tell your friends, and try to get more people to listen and participate in the Der Show. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Der Show.